12 of our 13-week series on church history, taking us from the Pentecost to today. Week 12, uh, it's, uh, it's been a really interesting journey. I know I've very, very much enjoyed learning about uh, the growth and history of, of God's church. Um, excited to bring to you this morning a period of uh, really focused on the history of the Baptist denomination. And uh, also looking forward to our last session, which will have a much more local historical context for us. So uh, it's great. Uh, before we begin this morning, maybe we could just uh, you could just join me in a word of prayer. <clears throat> oh Lord, our Rock and Redeemer, guide our thoughts and our words and our discussions today. Let our hearts be filled with your praise and thankfulness for all your works, including the building of your church. Let us never forget the good things you do for us still today. You've forgiven our sins. You've rescued us from death. You've crowned us with love and tender mercies. Renew our strength, O Lord, and refresh our souls. Father, we pray this morning for our church leaders here locally, through our elders and through our pastors, who faithfully serve redeeming grace. We pray for leaders from our Baptist affiliation, Converge. Father, that they may see more churches started disciples multiplied, and missionaries sent out. We pray for RGC's own mission support so that your word can be heard in places like northern India through the work of Zion Ministries, in Cameroon through our support of Gospel Baptist Church in Shadrach Vega. Father, multiply these efforts so that more and more those you call to your flock can hear your word. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, uh, if you take a look out, uh, look at your handouts this morning, at the top you'll see a passage from Matthew 28, verses 18 and 19. Jesus calls us in this passage, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I would say many, if not most, maybe even all of us are familiar with this passage. We all know it as the Great Commission. Jesus is charged to all believers to be evangelists throughout the world to all peoples. This morning, we want to really talk about two subjects, both mentioned within the Great Commission. The first is related to the matter of baptism. We here at RGC are a Baptist church. Now, we don't want to be too parochial about that, for we are, first and foremost, a Christian church. And we can enjoy fellowship with Christian believers who affirm the biblical gospel, though they may differ on small matters such as baptism and church governance. Yet, we are a Baptist church, and as we come to a close in this church history series, we want to understand our particular Baptist history. We're also a church that supports the spread of the gospel, uh, bringing uh, the gospel news to nations and people groups, a few of which I prayed for this morning. I encourage you all to keep those efforts in your own prayers. So as we look to the history of our denomination, we also want to understand the history of the world missions movement, and we'll see just how Baptists played a pretty significant role uh, in this, this global worldwide ministry. Next slide, please, John. So this is a time period in which we're going to cover today. We are kind of progressing closer to the more... Uh, modern points. We're covering kind of a wide swath of history this morning, overlapping with some of our more recent uh, series topics. 
But generally, this morning, we're covering a period of about 1525 to the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s. Next slide. So there is not just one point of historical origin for Baptists. We can locate at least four different possible origins to the Baptist story. Though, as I believe, and you'll probably see through uh, the content matter this morning, I really believe that the latter two form part of our, RGC's, authentic organic history. We're going to do this by looking at the origins, beliefs, and some of the descendants of these four streams that you see up on the screen here. What I want to do is give you an overview of these four streams, but I first I think it's appropriate to distinguish a really basic kind of central bare bones definition of what a Baptist is. One thing that certainly distinguishes them from the Roman Catholic, the Anglican, the Presbyterian, or the Congregationalist Church, and many others can be kind of uh, distilled down to two main thoughts. First is clear religious freedom. And this is a freedom of conscience. It's from both the state, uh, well, it's primarily from the state, and that God alone judges the conscience, and that the state cannot judge that, uh, the heretic or the atheist. This idea affects our polity and our congregational autonomy. And then the second is believer's baptism. So the pure church consists of those, those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. Thus, only professing believers are then baptized and admitted into church membership. This is very different from paedobaptism, as we heard about in the early development of the, of the church. Uh, next slide, please, John. And speaking of this, this break from paedobaptism, we're first going to talk about Anabaptists, and we're going to start in around 1525. You may remember from our class on the Reformation, in the context of the Reformation, we talked about several weeks ago, we, we really didn't touch on what would have been known at the time as uh, radical reformers. We certainly talked about those who were reforming from the ideology of the Roman Catholic Church, but just like with any sort of uh, movement, there's always going to be far-right and far-left spectrums of believers. So within this uh, Reformation, there were some very, uh, so I should say, more radical reformers. Good example is in Zurich, where Ulrich Zwingli was reforming the church. Some individuals, even within his own group, were frustrated with the pace of that reform. They thought it to be really too slow. And what they argued was that Luther and, for a large part, Zwingli, they were working with the officials within the Roman Catholic Church who were in authority, and they would rather just break and not cooperate with the Catholic Church at all. These individuals wanted a complete and final separation from the authority of the Pope over their uh, worship. So this division between Zwingli and his more radical disciples became super apparent in October of 1523, where a disputation was held in Zurich. The discussion there was really about the Mass, and what was about to, uh, they were deciding on was the Mass to be ended without ma- making any subsequent change in practice. So were they going to continue Masses, or were the Masses just going to evolve and change? And this one individual named Conrad Grebel, he stood up and asked, well, what should be done with the Mass? And Zwingli responded by saying that the council would make the decision. And at this point, an individual named Simon Strumpf, a very radical priest, answered by saying, well, then the decision has already been made by the Spirit of God. So this incident, this incident illustrated that Zwingli and his more radical disciples had very different expectations. Uh, 
to Zwingli, the reforms would only go as fast as the authorities would really allow them. To the radicals, the council really had no right to make that decision, but rather the Bible was the final authority on church reform. So feeling frustrated, some of them began to meet on their own for Bible study. And as early as 1523, many leaders of this radical reforming group rejected the practice of infant baptism. And so the movement's most distinctive tenet became adult baptism. This is really the origin of the moniker that they received as Anabaptist, Anna being a Greek prefix for again. And in its first generation, converts submitted to a second baptism, which, uh, interestingly, was a crime punishable by death under the legal codes from Rome at the time. Members rejected the label, uh, that, that label is Anabaptist, or the more negative rebaptizer, for they repudiated their own baptism as infants as a blasphemous formality and basically was meaningless. As I mentioned, local authorities denounced them. They called them rebaptizers. They viewed their ideas as heretical and even child abuse as they thought that they were um, separating infants from the love and care of God. And they also obviously looked at it as seditious and that they were advocating for some anarchical uprising within the church. These reformers and others heavily persecuted, I'm sorry, the reformers and others heavily persecuted and even executed some of the Anabaptists. So through the 1530s, you had this number of Anabaptist groups and churches pop up as this idea kind of spread across Europe. The vehemence and intransigence of the Anabaptist leaders and the revolutionary implications of their teachings, however, kind of led their expulsion from one city after another. Uh, This simply increased the momentum of what could be called essentially a missionary movement as their ideology had to kind of spread out as they were heavily persecuted. This was likely an influence on the world missions movement, which we'll discuss a little bit later on this morning. Soon, civil magistrates took sterner measures, and most of the early Anabaptist leaders died in prison or were executed. So let's talk a little bit about their beliefs. There's considerable diversity among the Anabaptists in their theology and practice. But it is their uh, extreme elements that distinguish them from one another and from the other reformers of the time. So the first is obviously they considered the public confession of sin and faith sealed by adult baptism to be the only proper baptism as described in the Bible. Most Anabaptists were pacifists. They opposed war and the use of coercive measures to maintain the social order. They also refused to swear oaths, including those to civil authorities. For their teachings regarding baptism and for the apparent danger they posed to the political order, they were ubiquitously prosecuted within Europe at the time. They did not want to hold a government office. They questioned the idea of original sin, and most were semi-Pelagian in their theology. Remember, we talked about Pelagianism in our early sessions. They were also radically egalitarian and were suspect of both state and ecclesiastical authority or any form of discernible authority in the, in the church that wasn't clearly established through the scriptures. <clears throat> This led many to pursue a religious perfectionism and a separation from the world around them. They were quite confident that they were living at the end time and they expected the imminent return of Jesus Christ. The Anabaptist denominations, you may recognize some of these as the the Mennonites, 
So they teach that true faith entails a new birth, a spiritual regeneration by God's grace and powers. And believers are those who have become the spiritual children of God. In Anabaptist theology, the pathway to salvation is marked not by a forensic understanding of salvation by faith alone, but by the entire process of repentance, self-denial, faith rebirth, and obedience. They believe that those who wish to tarry this path receive baptism after the new birth. And Anabaptists heavily emphasize the importance of obedience in salvation uh, in the journey of a, a sanctified believer. Now, as a whole, Anabaptists emphasize an adherence to the beliefs of early Christianity and are thus distinguished by their keepings of practices that often include the observance of feet washing, the holy kiss, and communion. They also engage in Christian head covering, non-conformity to the world, non-resistance, forgiveness, and sharing of possessions, which in certain communities takes the form of kind of communal living. Anabaptists view themselves as a separate branch of Christianity, not necessarily being part of Catholicism or Protestantism. Either are they a part of uh, any of the orthodoxy. Their descendants would be known, as I mentioned, as what we kind of see as Mennonites or the Amish, as well as the Quakers. And as a quick antidote, you'll note the picture on the slide. As I was researching uh, Anabaptist history, this is a drawing depicting Dirk Willems. It's a really interesting story, so I'm going to share it with you this morning. So Dirk was an Anabaptist martyr who was born in the Netherlands. He was rebaptized uh, as a young man in Rotterdam. This action, plus his continued devotion to his new faith and the baptism of several other people in his home, led to his condemnation by the Roman Catholic Church in the Netherlands, and subsequently he was arrested in 1569. So while under arrest, Williams was held in this residential palace, which doesn't sound super horrible, that was turned into a prison. Uh, And so he formulated an escape plan. So he fastened a rope made out of knotted rags and lowered himself down out of the castle. Uh, where he landed uh, as he escaped was onto a frozen moat that surrounded the castle. So a guard, uh, doing their due diligence, noticed his escape and gave chase. Willems was able to traverse the thin ice of the frozen pond because of his lighter weight after subsisting on prison rations. So I guess it probably wasn't all that great there if he was super skinny. Uh, However, the pursuing guard actually fell through the ice and yelled for help as he struggled in the icy water. Willems turned back and saved the life of his pursuer, and was thus recaptured. His rescued pursuer stated his desire to let Willems go for saving his life, but the authorities in charge refused. Willems was thereafter held until he was condemned by a group of seven judges who quoted Willems' persisting obstinance in his opinion as reason for their um, persecution. They ordered that he be burned at the stake on uh, May 16th of 1569, and today he's one of the most celebrated martyrs among Anabaptists. I thought that was just a pretty cool story. Next slide, please, John. Uh, So next we're going to move on to general Baptists, the second of these kind of possible origins of the Baptist faith. Pictured here is John Smith. Uh, He was born in 1565 and lived to about 1612. In 1607, Smith broke with the Church of England and left for Holland, where he and a close friend, uh, Thomas Helwys, 
born in 1550 and lived till 1616, uh, and a small congregation began to study, study the Bible ardently. Now, in the beginning, Smith was closely aligned with his Anglican heritage, but as time progressed and he spent more time studying the Bible, uh, <clears throat> his views evolved. Smith's education at Cambridge had a major influence as it included a heavy emphasis upon Aristotle and logic and metaphysics. So Smith's evolving ecclesiology was due to his applying biblical truth into his logical writings and study. Now, it was in Holland that Smith discovered Anabaptist theology and retained its principles notably and heavily on uh, believers' baptism, specifically by immersion. And he began to oppose infant baptism altogether, and he also uh, further really supported the, the memorial meaning of the Last Supper as opposed to the actual transubstantiation of the sacraments. In 1608, he published uh, The Differences in the Churches, a really um, expository writing in which he explained the characteristics of a biblical church, including three main points. So first, Smith insisted that true worship comes from the heart and that there should be no books other than the Bible in the pews within the local church. Praying, singing, and preaching should be spontaneous only, and not left to a scripted mass uh, sort of uh, ritual. Secondly, Smith introduced a twofold church leadership where there was the role of a pastor and a deacon, and he said that a church could have actually several pastors, which we would obviously find some familiarity here. And third, the financial support of the church should come only from the members and not from the government, because that would mean it would give them logical control over the decisions made within the church. Uh, He who holds the money bag can call the shots sometimes. So in 1609, Smith and Helwes, along with a group in Holland, came to believe so heavily in believers' baptism that they came together to form one of the earliest Baptist churches. Smith became convinced that believers' baptism was biblical and infant baptism was not, and having adopted Baptist principles in Holland, he baptized himself and then 40 others, including uh, Helwes. The first English General Baptist Church was formed in Holland under Smith. Unfortunately, he was later excommunicated by his own church when he tried to make them become Mennonites, so he kind of leaned a little bit too heavily on the Anabaptist uh, uh, theology. From there, the General Baptist kind of uh, followed Helwes' leadership, And he took several members of the English General Baptist Church with him back to England and founded the first Baptist church in England in Spitalfields in 1612. Now, I mentioned the Mennonites a a few times already. Uh, uh, The Mennonite church was very distinct from this Baptist church as the General Baptists disagreed on their beliefs on a few points, but pretty chiefly on the lawfulness of oaths and the quote-unquote celestial flesh of Christ. So both... Uh, you know, the legalistic ideas of what, you know, swearing of oaths as well as transubstantiation. Uh, He was imprisoned at Newgate Prison in 1615 for his views and died in 1616. So as we look at the beliefs of the general Baptists, we can see that they uh, hold to the general or unlimited atonement view. That is the belief that Jesus Christ died for the entire world and not just for uh, an elect chosen group of people. This means that General Baptists are theologically Arminian. They held that Christ's death applied generally to all people and that people can freely accept or reject their salvation through Christ and that they can, they can lose it through their acts. Uh, 
In 1610's Confession, Smith wrote, God has ordained all men and life, and there is no original sin, but all sin is actual and voluntary, and therefore infants are without sin. So we can see uh, a very stark contrast from the uh, more Calvinistic influences that we believe uh, here, and we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about that in the next group. So, following this general Baptist faith, you can see that um, uh, there was a, quite a bit of growth. By 1650, there were 47 general Baptist churches in Europe and Greater England, and they'd formed a, their own general assembly uh, uh, early, even earlier, 1564. They'd started their first assembly. However, like their founder Smith, they suffered doctrinal ambiguity and virtually became extinct by 1800, although some kind of remained, and the Unitarian Church uh, can, can sometimes is often linked back to this general Baptist theology. Next slide, please, John. <clears throat> okay, particular Baptists. Uh, their origins are, are really interesting. Um, so particular Baptists, you can also, when you see that, you can also think of them as Reformed Baptists, or Calvinistic Baptists, and they're Baptists that hold to a Calvinistic soteriology, so that they, they understand the way we're saved a bit differently than the general Baptists understood it. Particular Baptists emerged from a Puritan separatist congregation in which Henry Jacob had formed in 1616. By 1638, the first English Calvinist Baptists began meeting, and by 1644, seven particular Baptist churches were associating together. So these particular Baptist churches issued the London Confession in 1644 to distinguish themselves from the general Baptists, as well as Anabaptists, as we spoke about, their beliefs really contradict uh, what those other two groups believed. So let's talk about their beliefs. Um, Question? Sure. Yes, yeah, okay. yes. And that's what general Baptists would? General Baptists do hold to that. Unlim- so there's no limitations on the atonement. Christ's death was uh, atoned for all sin in that it was really incumbent upon the believer to accept their salvation through Christ. But even if they don't, they're still <coughs> Well, I wouldn't say that I'm... I don't know if that's true or not, because they, they also believe that you can lose your salvation. So there, I think that there is certainly an element of works, salvation through works within that. You know, and there's a, it's a, and we talked a little bit about it in some of our earlier sessions and the differentiation between Pelagianism, whereas like there's it's not it's it's synergistic, right? God, both God works for your salvation and you work for your salvation. Where we believe, you know, where the particular Baptists would believe in not synergism but monergism, meaning it's it's really only God that saves, and then you get into Calvinism, which says believes the limited atonement piece and that only only a, a select number are saved, but. General Baptists fully believe that the atonement was for all, but they did believe in that Pelagianism, meaning, you know, synergism, that you have to work as well as God working for your salvation. Right. Okay, but I do see how that started with Unitarianism. Is that what you said? Yes, Unitarianism is an origin, you know, the General Baptists are, are, are cited as like an origin 
divergence for the Unitarian Church. I haven't studied that particular denomination super well. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so we were talking about the beliefs of the particular Baptists. Uh, now, obviously, they grew out of the English Calvinistic Puritanism. Now, as a quick reminder, Calvinism can be thought of in five rather complex but, con- but more uh, tightly defined categorical points. So five points of categorical Calvinism. You have total depravity unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So particular Baptists became known by their view of particular atonement, meaning Christ's death had a saving significance, for sure, but only for those particular souls regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and thus contra to the general Baptists, to your question, Sonia, as we talked. A lot of descendants from, uh, from these particular uh, Baptists both general and particular Baptists grew rapidly during the English Civil War, which took place obviously between, well, not obviously, but as we learned, between 1642 and 1649, as well as in the Commonwealth Interregnum period between 1650 and 1660. Uh, As we talked about during those times, they were actually able to enjoy a reasonable degree of freedom of religion and Protestantism in that period, uh, with around 300 Baptist churches coming to existence by 1660. Some of the early particular Baptist leaders are William Kiffin, Benjamin Keach, John Gill, and Andrew Fuller. And as you can see, actually pictured here, Andrew, that's Andrew Fuller. Uh, it's a horrible picture of him, by the way. Little, that is Andrew Fuller, nonetheless. Uh, he emerged as perhaps the greatest theologian ever to come out from the ranks of the English Baptists. During Fuller's day, a few churches had begun to adopt what some, caller, some scholars kind of call hyper-Calvinism, which means uh, they, were, they, they, they were characterized by their over-determined beliefs that since God had ordained every last event, people could not really be held responsible for their own sin, and preachers had no business proclaiming the gospel to all people because God had already ordained who he was going to save. But not only to those, uh, they determined to be elect. So, so really it was kind of like this feudalism type uh, viewpoint based on this hyper-Calvinism. Against these excesses and misunderstandings, Fuller held firm to God's complete sovereignty and salvation, yet still urged Christians to resist sin, rightfully, and preach the gospel to everyone and let God sort out who it was to be saved. Further, uh, Fuller helped spark a, a great revival in England during the last years of the 18th century. Uh, really a pivotal person uh, in the continuation of the particular Baptist faith. Next slide, please. Uh, A couple uh, uh, really epic particular Baptists up on the screen here. Aside from Fuller, uh, who I actually really didn't know a lot about until I began researching for this class, obviously you you see on the screen two of the most famous particular Baptists that I think we probably all have some familiarity with. Uh, John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon. So John Bunyan, uh, he was an English writer and Puritan preacher, best remembered as the author of the Christian allegory of the Pilgrim's Progress, which also became an influential literary model. In addition to the Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan wrote nearly 60 titles. Many of them were really just expanded sermons that he'd preached. He was baptized in 1653 at the age of 24, uh, after which he began preaching. 
He was imprisoned in 1660 by Charles II for preaching without permission of the magistrate. He was imprisoned again in 1675 where he wrote a spiritual autobiography called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, as well as that really epic uh, book that we all are familiar with, Pilgrim's Progress. And a quick shameless plug for our Wednesday night gatherings during the summer. Last summer, you all enjoyed a group reading of Pilgrim's Progress, which I was deeply saddened to have missed uh, while I was on deployment. However, uh, not all is lost. This summer, I believe that's still correct, we will uh, again be enjoying a group reading of the, of the second part of Pilgrim's Progress. So please join us for Wednesday night gatherings. Second is Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm a bit uh, actually embarrassed about how little we're going to talk about Charles Spurgeon because he's just such an influential figure. But he was baptized in 1850 at the age of 19. He became the pastor of the largest congregation in London. This church continued to outgrow buildings as it grew immense in size, leading to the construction of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1861. This massive church was built to hold 5,000 seated parishioners and 1,000 standing to listen to uh, the preached word. Spurgeon was a prolific preacher and writer, delivering over 3,600 sermons and composing 49 volumes of commentaries and devotions. Just a a really uh, prolific figure in the Baptist faith. Next slide, please, John. A bit closer to home, we're going to talk about American Baptists and, and what, the, what the Baptist faith looked like uh, in the early to mid-American uh, uh, times. The first Baptist church in America was established in 1639 by Roger Williams, pictured there. Roger Williams attended Cambridge and was ordained as an Anglican, but he eventually became Puritan He came to the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1631. Williams argued that Puritans had no right to Indian land, and he felt it wrong for magistrates to enforce church attendance and other spiritual duties. John Winthrop actually banished Williams to England, but rather than return over the Atlantic, Williams chose to leave, and in October 1635, he arrived at the head of Narragansett Bay, uh, where he founded Providence, Rhode Island. So Baptists only held slight presence until the First Great Awakening in the 1740s. So Baptist churches grew, primarily particular Baptists holding to the Calvinist soteriology. But this growth growth was incredible after the First Great Awakening. In the North, and and specifically in New England, there were 25 churches in 1740. But by 1804, that grew to 312. So this led to the spread into the southern colonies, where by the 1770s, the number of Baptist churches were in the thousands. So the beliefs of the early uh, American Baptists kind of had a bit of a a mix between that general Baptist and particular Baptist uh, soteriology. Particular Baptists were somewhat headquartered in the Philadelphia area, where in 1707, the Association of Baptists became the first organized fellowship of Baptist churches in America. The American Baptists obviously developed their idea uh, from their English forefathers, and they touched on religious freedom and freedom of conscience. So Baptists across the colonies began to raise questions, two of which were, is there wisdom in the mixing of a church-state establishment? And two, given the renowned emphasis on conversion, these questions about infant baptism not only just continued but were further... uh, Uh, inflamed. Generally, and a bit paradoxically in this time period, the U.S. really wasn't a place of 
kind of pure religious freedom, with the exception of maybe Pennsylvania and Rhode Island, Baptists and other outside groups often felt the pangs of persecution, and this came from other Protestants, interestingly enough. Baptists were leaders in advocating for the idea that the church is an entity ordained by God, and it's used only to his ends, mainly the worship of his name and the proclamation of the gospel. They came to believe that the church was not a state entity, and further, the state really had no authority over it. In the Puritan Northeast and the Anglican South, Baptists and other outsiders were actually regularly persecuted, even in, even in the U.S. Next slide, please. So descendants of the American Baptists, we're going to touch on a couple. Uh, the left side of the slide there is Isaac Bacchus, who lived from 1724 to 1806. Uh, Bacchus was converted during the First Great Awakening. He founded a Baptist church, and actually his own mother was arrested for not paying dues or tithes to the state congregational church. He was a prolific writer, and his manuscripts often promoted freedom of the church from the state. He believed that taxation without representation, which is an idea that we all understood, actually also applied to the church. John Leland, on the right side of the screen, was an ardent abolitionist, and he was very close friends with James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. Leland fought for the disestablishment of religion, the ideas in which you can find actually codified in the Bill of Rights. He was known as a hymn writer. A couple of his hymns, The Day is Past and Gone and The Evening Shades Appear, they've been included in many, many hymnals, and several of his hymns are preserved in the Sacred Harp. Interestingly, this is kind of funny, uh, Leland opposed theological seminaries, yet, ironically, the John Leland Center for Theological Studies in Virginia is named in his honor. The school was named for Leland for three reasons, his firm stand for religious liberty for all, his opposition to slavery, and his service as a pastor and and evangelist. Next slide. So we spoke briefly about the Second Great Awakening last week, uh, and a huge tenet of this was the democratic appeal, the free choice of the people. Baptists and Methodists really joined that democratic appeal and really uh, supported effective leadership within their denominations. And this was largely a contributing factor to the growth of the denomination. And when I say growth, it was, it was substantial. 1812, there were around 200,000 Baptists in the United States. By 1850, over a million. Areas uh, or pockets within the country where American Baptists spread and large gatherings included the frontier area in Ohio, Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Revivals created uh, organizations that supported an increasing interest in the the ministry's outreach. Uh, From this birthed uh, the the, uh, Baptist Confession. Many of them spurred the Baptist Confessions, but we're going to talk about some uh, foundational ones first. Let's talk a little bit about correcting a misunderstanding about Baptists. Some have accused Baptists of asserting that there is no creed but the Bible. And we, we know that to be untrue. We, we understand a creed and as, as a confession, as a statement of beliefs. It spells out the doctrinal principles to which a person or a group of people hold. An example that we're all familiar with is the Apostles' Creed. Some say Baptists are so individualistic and their reject, rejection of state authority is so great and that their beliefs can be so fragmented, and they're so ignorant of church history, which is why we're doing this core seminar, by the way. Uh, they also, you know, there's this moniker that they're, they're squishy on doctrine, and that they don't articulate what they believe. But from the beginning, this was really untrue. Baptists have written uh, statements of faith to outline specifically what they believe, 
really uh, as early as the mid-1600s. And I want to briefly walk through those statements or confessions. Now, we're not going to dive into each of them. That would be several hours of instruction on their own accord. Um, but they are very interesting to look at, and you kind of see the evolution of the theology of, of Baptists as you work through them. So the first one was in 1644. It was the first London Confession. It was really a warm, devotional, and generally Calvinistic confession in the midst of English Civil War. It was purposeful to distinguish particular Baptists from general Baptists and a defense against uh, the charges that they were simply Anabaptist. (coughs) The second London Confession of 1689 really allowed Baptists to revision the Westminster Confession, and it was intentional in utilizing the same language as Westminster to strive for unity in belief and drawing distinctions over some matters such as the practice of baptism and congregational government. Fast forward about 200 years to 1833, and you have the New Hampshire Confession. Now, this produced a a big change. It produced a missionary society under the Triennial Convention and 18 points under the Confession of Faith. Most widely, this New Hampshire Confession is used among English-speaking Baptists. One element of this confession is that the Bible has God for its author, salvations for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. So this triennial convention that uh, really triggered the the Baptist mission movement, it was the first national organization of Baptists in the U.S., and its primary impulse was foreign missions. But it also gave uh, itself to other work, including the foundation of a college in D.C., Columbian College. In its first 20 years, by 1834, uh, the triennial convention had sent out 100 missionaries. And by 1845, the convention had renamed to the American Baptist Missionary uh, Union And in 1930, it became the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society. Next slide, please. Which is a good segue into our our just real brief discussion about the world's mission movement. For the rest of our time, I'd like to highlight uh, this this idea of foreign missions. But please don't don't, uh, misunderstand me. Uh, It is very certain that Baptists were not the only uh, uh, mission-minded denomination. Uh, Also... I do not have time to recount the probably millions of Baptist ministry, uh, foreign uh, missionary movements that have have occurred. Uh, But what I do want to do is suggest that um, even though missions work has been prevalent in the monastic orders since the Middle Ages, and Calvin's pastors that he sent abroad to Jonathan Edwards and his colonial counterparts to the Native Americans, what Baptists have had is a particular role in the, in the advancement of missions. So how did they do this? Well, first, uh, I'll talk about William Carey on the left side of the screen. Carey was an English pastor who was known as the father, father of the modern missions movement. He worked in a shoe shop where he kept books next to his bench so that he could learn languages, uh, of which he learned Dutch, French, Latin, Indo-European uh, languages. In 1792, he and several friends organized the Baptist Missionary Society, uh, actually out of Andrew Fuller's house, and sent preachers to remote parts of the world. And this became the model for other denominations. He personally sailed with his family to India, where he suffered some really significant trials. His child died, contributing to his wife's severe and crippling depression. But through it all, he focused on the embedded ministry, including learning local languages and culture. And Carey, with the assistance of his colleagues, translated the Bible into 42 Asian languages 
and he established 20 churches in India. Following Carey's lead, others established organizations for foreign uh, missions work. In 1806, in response to uh, evangelical preaching of the Second Great Awakening, a group of Williams College students who were Congregationalists were stuck in a thunderstorm, and they held a prayer meeting, and a fire was lit within them for foreign missions work. So in 1810, the Congregationalists in Massachusetts formed the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, and they sent out a contingent two years later, and among them were Adoniram Judson, pictured in the middle, and Luther Rice, who I couldn't find any photos of, but here's a a placard for him. Yeah. Yeah, apparently, yeah, one, and I couldn't find it. So So, uh, both of these uh, missionary workers, uh, on the boat to India, uh, they actually became convinced of believer's baptism. So they worked for a congregationalist organization, so this meant a little bit of a problem for them because they, they, they kind of diverged from what their sending uh, denomination believed. So Rice would return to the U.S. from India, and Judson would continue on to Burma. Rice went on to push for the organization in 1814 of the General Missionary Convention of the Baptist Denomination in the United States for foreign missions. Judson, like Carey... Uh, went on to Burma and uh, actually endured, again, significant trials while he was there. He lost three wives. He was subjected to long periods of imprisonment, but all of his suffering wasn't without tremendous impact. All told, over 7,000 souls were converted to Christianity, and Judson mentored and sent out over 100 local national ministers. Next slide. So we've come to a point where we kind of have to talk about uh, some certain facets of a sad story in American Baptist uh, history. So we're going to talk about two conventions or or two organizations. First is the Southern Baptist Convention, and secondly, uh, our affiliation, Converge. But starting with the Southern Baptist Convention, um, just kind of a a kind of a dark a dark history where we should kind of start. Obviously, this period of history uh, in colonial America, or actually uh, early non-colonial America, uh, was kind of um, I guess you could say, undergirded by the, the sad, stark reality of slavery within the United States. So by 1830, uh, there was growing tension between the Northern and Southern Baptists over, over slavery. In the 1840s, the National Missions Agencies began to raise strong objections to certifying candidates who owned slaves. In response, the Baptist churches in the South withdrew their support. So Baptists up to this point had been largely uh, democratic and sought equality. Many were involved in the abolition movement. Plus, there were many black Baptist churches and leaders in the antebellum period. So why did this happen? Well, uh, it can be explained by this new generation of ministers who had become accommodated to Southern culture, which prominently featured the horrors of slavery as simply an economic reality. Responding to the wishes of the upper class within the South, they developed defenses for slavery. And I, I do want to mention, not as an excuse, but just as a, as a fact, this was not unique to Baptists. You can see this in the Presbyterian history as well. This was a shameful blight on Baptist history. The, den- the denomination has since publicly repented of its history with slavery, formally denounced all forms of racism by repudiating historical acts of evil such as slavery, We've repented of all forms of racism that has occurred in the past, and we've asked for forgiveness from African Americans for its role in such forms of racism. 
So within the Southern Baptist Convention, this is kind of the first of two big crises that have kind of shaped it. The second was uh, theological liberalism that American churches encountered in the late 19th and early 20th century. And this was characterized by the denial of authority and the truth of the Bible. The Southern Baptist Convention grew to be the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, even in this time period. Now, our church is formally affiliated with Converge, which was formerly known as the Baptist General Convention, uh, or, and, and formerly even, well, before Converge, it was known as Converge Worldwide. Converge is an evan- evangelical Baptist Christian denomination in the United States, affiliated with the Baptist World Alliance and the National Association of Evangelicals. Through our affiliation, we're part of a movement of churches working to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. Converge accomplishes this by starting and strengthening churches together worldwide. And for 170 years now, Converge has helped churches bring life change to the communities in the United States and around the world through church planting uh, and multiplication, leadership training and coaching, and global missions work. It's headquartered in Orlando, and the current president of Converge is Scott Rideout. Although I couldn't, is it Rideau or is it Rideout? Rideout. As we wrap up this morning uh, and think about what it is to be a Baptist, I would like to end with a quote from a letter that Andrew Fuller sent to William Carey. <clears throat> I, could as often, uh, I could as often have made similar complaints in return, but let us rather pray for each other and strengthen each other's hands in the Lord. It is wonderful that God should do anything by poor, groveling sinners as we are. One thing, however, is manifested by it. The work is entirely his own, and if we should reach the kingdom of God at last, it must be by great grace. God has honored us not a little by employing us in this great work, but as the honor does not belong to us, we must return it. The crowns do not seem fit our heads, therefore they must be cast at the feet of Jesus. All right, uh, any questions that we might have? Time? Oh, thanks, wife. <laughs> We're a bit short on time, I think, but a uh, couple minutes, one minute or two minutes for any questions? Not currently. I know that there was some talks about it uh, a couple of years ago, but I don't know if that's come to fruition. Okay, well, let me close this in a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for our history. We thank you for the work you do in the church. We thank you for the work of this church and churches like ours. Father, may the gospel spread, and may we be, uh, however insignificant or significant, involved in that work. Father, we love you for all things, but most for our salvation through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.